The 31st of August, 1997, will be remembered around the world as the day Princess Diana died. It was all that anyone could talk about. Everyone was shocked and appalled. Everyone, everyone, except me. Because I was shocked and appalled about something completely different. You see, I'd just been on a four-wheel drive training course in Lismore and had hitched a ride back to Kempsey with a senior colleague named Glenn. And it wasn't too far into the trip that I realised my grave mistake. Glenn was an absolute maniac behind the wheel. Not only did he drive insanely fast, but his steering was incredibly jerky and he didn't keep his eyes on the road. Uneasiness turned into anxiety. My anxiety grew into undisguised stress and handle-gripping terror. Looking out the window or babbling about cricket scores had no calming effect whatsoever. But when he overtook a car around a blind corner, I absolutely lost it. I yelled, I roared, I swore my head off as the pent-up pressure and stress just erupted like a volcano. A few minutes later, Glenn slammed the brakes on, pulled over and told me in no uncertain terms what he thought of me and tossed me the keys. And so we spent the next two hours peacefully commuting home in stony silence, all on the day Princess Diana died. How on earth does conflict happen? Why does it happen? I didn't plan for that story. I wasn't spoiling for a fight. I didn't have an axe to grind with Glenn. We'd had, we'd had a great three or four days four-wheel drive training. But suddenly, I'm up to my eyeballs in intense hostility, flaming anger, and then suddenly, simmering, resentful silence. took months to heal that one. How on earth did that happen? I feel as though this may be the most important message I've ever shared with this church, and not just today, ever. I feel like my whole life has become a study in peacemaking, in seeking to understand the causes of conflict. Yes, to avoid conflict, but more importantly, to learn and to model and to implore others to work through our conflict the way God wants us to do. To be like our Father in heaven, who is the ultimate peacemaker. Well, speaking of being like my father, and like my mother, for that matter, I am. They say apples don't fall far from the tree, and it's true. Growing up in a Christian family, a Baptist family, we just didn't do conflict. It wasn't allowed. Well, it did occur, but if mum and dad were mad about something, they'd go off to a private room, shut the door, and no matter of careful listening through the door would reveal what on earth the two of them were whispering about. As we grew older and as arguments arose, 
with teenagers, as they inevitably do. I remember my sister and I, and then a generation later, even my children, when visiting their grandparents, being told, nope, nope, that's the end of it. We love each other. That's the end of it. Have you ever been shut down like that? Conflict is real. It's inevitable in this world. But as we can see from these two illustrations, both of which I hope you agree are not ideal responses to conflict, there is a better way. Now, the content of this sermon is unashamedly inspired by the, the peace-wise course. And I will continue to urge all of you to consider this course as a tool, an incredibly helpful tool for giving you a framework, whether you are young or old, for dealing with, rightly with conflict for the rest of your life. But don't think that today that this sermon equals the peace-wise course. It absolutely does not. But I will say that many people have been praying for this sermon today, and I pray that it lights a fire within you to seek reconciliation in our relationships and all for the sake of our unity and our greater witness to the forgiveness and the restoration that we have in Christ. We all have work to do, and it's urgent. Well, the PeaceWise course has a useful illustration, a diagram called the slippery slope, and if you have a sermon outline, it's reproduced for you there today. The slippery slope refers to the human habit of so easily slipping either left or right from that stable, secure ground at the top of the picture. That's the true peacemaking zone, which we'll examine shortly. The zone where the Holy Spirit wants you and me to be. When I was in that speeding car with Glenn, with nowhere to run, you can see that I slipped across to the right, to the zone of peace-breaking. I verbally assaulted him in the classic fight response. And I probably felt particularly bad about that because my upbringing was on the opposite slope, the peace-faking side. See the one denial? No conflict here, folks. We don't fight. We love each other. And that's the end of it. I know of many, many times in my life where I had a disagreement with someone and I'd literally flee. I'd walk or I'd run away from it, avoiding them, just so that that horrible conflict feeling would go away. But of course, it doesn't go away. It lingers. It's awkward. It's isolating. And it's lonely. And both extremes are just what the enemy of our souls wants for the church. He wants for us to be divided and hurting and angry. And so I ask you, are we going to let him win? The Bible gives us a weird and actually amazing story of peacemaking. And you heard it just now, read from 1 Samuel 25. If you've got it open, that would be handy. Before he's king, 
when he was just a roaming mercenary for hire with a small but lethal army, David provided protection to the workers and the flocks of a rich guy named Nabal, who we are helpfully told is surly and a fool. It's feast time, and David sends some men to Nabal to ask for provisions. He's politely calling in the debt Nabal owes him for services rendered. But Nabal's reply is as his name suggests. It's foolish. He pokes the sleeping bear. He deeply insults David's pride, his honour, and he denies David and his men fair recompense. He even implies that David is a runaway slave. And in the culture of that day, that's an insult not to be ignored. Strap on your swords, David tells 400 of his finest warriors. We ride through the night to execute Nabal and all of his male servants. Suddenly, a stingy refusal to be generous is a crisis of impending mass murder. David is sliding at breakneck speed to the far right of the slippery slope, which, as you see, is labelled murder. It's extremely dangerous now in verse 17. The servants report to Abigail, disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. But notice how Abigail, the wife of Nabal, behaves when the servants report to her. Verse 18. Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, that means slaughtered sheep, five seals of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins, 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them onto donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending towards her, and she met them. David had just said, it's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness, so that none of it was missing. He's paid me back evil for good. And then a rash promise. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey, bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Consider then where Abigail sits on the slippery slope. In the midst of literally life-threatening conflict, she proactively makes peace. Where on earth she got all that food and drink from so fast, I'll never know. She wasted no time in ranting or raving at Nabal, nor did she flee for her life. She prepared a peacekeeping feast and rode out on her donkey to meet this murderous army. So let's just pause there for a moment. Can you see the proactivity of peacemaking. Verse 18, she lost no time. This was urgent. And she did not run or hide from it. 
Notice too what it cost her, and not just the value of all that produce, which would have been considerable. She probably had to work non-stop through the night. And then she humbled herself to own Nabal's folly by falling at David's feet in humility. But her heart was not motivated just to save her own neck, nor was it to save her wealth and her prosperity, and nor was it simply to stop the annihilation of Nabal and all the men of his household. The greater picture, Abigail wanted to stop the Lord's anointed king from becoming a mass murderer. Verse 30, when the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and appointed him ruler over Israel, then my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord has, your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. To which David replies, praise be to the Lord the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. I hope you receive this incredible wisdom that God gave Abigail to be a peacemaker. Her peaceful actions prevented David's kingship from being bathed in bloodshed, vengeance, and cruelty before it even began. And as we see in verses 37 and 38, her peacemaking actions actually left room for God's judgment. When Abigail eventually told Nabal how close he'd come to disaster, his heart failed him, he became like stone. Then ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Leave room for God's wrath. Now, it's a quirky story, one that I knew little about, and it certainly has a lot to say about peacemaking. But I think you and I face a real risk when we listen to such stories. We think Abigail is a bit of a miracle. I mean, she's perfect, isn't she? She just nails it. Abigail sprang into action and saved the day, super Abigail. I mean, I could never do that. When conflict surprises me, I can't help it. I just automatically fight or fly, flee from the life. You might say, I'm not gifted at conflict resolution. I panic and my tongue turns to putty and I just babble or I get emotional. I just can't do it. I won't and it's not my fault. Believe me, if you feel that way, I'm sympathetic to you. Peacemaking sounds great, but it's just too hard sometimes. Perhaps you feel, I tried. I really did, but I just can't do it anymore. And then we hear our loving Lord Jesus say to us, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Or to paraphrase it, blessed are you who make peace, because then you are just like your heavenly Father. And then I stop my fighting or my fleeing 
And I accept that the Lord God knows what he's talking about. Jesus wants me, he wants you to live the blessed life. He wants me to forgive as God has forgiven me. And he's given me his spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline, not a spirit of timidity. 2 Timothy 1.7 Don't be afraid and don't give up. Step out now in obedience and trust and learn to be a peacemaker. The PeaceWise course gives four simple steps for proactive peacemaking. The four Gs, they're called. And they're easy to remember if you have a mobile phone on the 4G network. So, now you remember. You can see on the sermon outline what they are. Conflict is an opportunity to glorify God. Two, get the log out of your own eye, which includes the seven A's of a good apology, which you can look up later. Three, gently restore. And four, Go in peace and be reconciled. As I said, this sermon is not about replacing the peace-wise course. Rather, I'm about to step you through a real-life example of how conflict can be dealt with in a God-glorifying manner. But before I do so, let me warn you of one thing and reassure you of another. Here's the warning. This is a completely true story of conflict between me and two people who were once members of this church. It's emotional to remember and to tell, so bear with me if I struggle to tell it. But I also ask that you fight any urge you may feel to receive this story as gossip and to dwell on the details. Resist that urge if you feel it and focus instead on the process and the outcome. Secondly, I want to give you an important reassurance. I have full permission to share this story with you. I receive that permission with a blessing and a promise that they are praying for this congregation right now as you hear it. Together, we offer up to you our failings, our conflict, and our reconciliation as hope to you that God works miracles and he can reconcile the irreconcilable. So the story. In July 2004, I quit 10 years working in land care and became the new centre director of Shoalhaven Youth Works the place that you would know as Watersley. I had no experience in Christian ministry or outdoor education, and I'm sure that it showed. The team of people that I led were all highly experienced, all overworked, and very close-knit. Two of them were fellow members at NBC, Tim and Naomi Case. You probably know them. It's difficult to pinpoint precisely where or how conflict arose between us. Misunderstandings of roles was certainly part of it. 
grieving the loss of an inspiring leader from the departing director and their close working friendship was yet another painful reality. An expanding business with high demands on staff and challenges with staff well-being in general and me, the amateur, amateur director, all a recipe for conflict. Within a few months, our communication with each other had dried up and become very uncomfortable. Eye contact was avoided. Conversations faltered when I entered the room, or at least I thought so. In frustration, I sometimes got heavy-handed and laid down the law on some issues, only to drive a wedge even further between us. At one stage, I remember howling with grief at how hated and misunderstood I felt. It seemed the harder I tried to fix things or to lead with more purpose and just work harder, the worse and worse it became between us. Eventually, Tim and Naomi and several others decided they couldn't take it anymore and flagged that they were going to leave. I was filled with sadness and despair. For the first time in my life, I was experiencing high blood pressure. After 15 months at YouthWorks, my bosses, filled with concern for me and the Watersley staff, asked me to step down as director and to leave. And I willingly did so. But it was without a doubt the lowest point of my working life. On two occasions as I was readying to leave, Tim and Naomi both indicated they would talk with me further. But as the weeks slipped into months, and as the months became years, nothing happened. They ended up staying on at Watersley, and the team grew and flourished. And I became a teacher and embarked on a whole new career path, which was difficult, but certainly blessed by God. The problem was, we were still in the same church together. And in truth, I was consumed by bitterness and anger. And I was jealous of their happiness and their success. For years, I replayed the sad events over and over in my mind, poisoning my own heart and refusing to heal. For two hours a day, I would drive to and from Albion Park, stewing over past hurts, until one day I could take it no longer and just cried out to the Lord in utter misery to save me from myself. Then and there I let go of all my pain and failure and just gave it to God. I literally chose a rock grotto on the side of the road going up Berry Mountain and declared it Forgiveness Grotto. It became a fixed landmark of forgiveness that God made me drive past twice a day and declare it's forgiven. It's done. It's paid for. And he made this stubborn heart of mine drive past it twice, uh, twice a day, time and time and time again, until I really did believe it was true. Three years later, in 2008, I was asked to consider eldership here 
And I knew I could not abide the thought of shepherding people in this church with whom I was hopelessly estranged. The awkwardness, the the lack of eye contact and the inability to mumble more than a few words was beyond cringeworthy to me. But I knew that I had to act. So after extensive journaling and prayer, I took an hour or so to write the world's shortest email, asking to meet and to discuss the elephant in the room. When Tim and Naomi replied, yes, they would gladly meet, I knew my battle with reconciliation was all but one. The night we met, August 11th, 2008, was my most profound experience of glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men and women on on whom his favour rests. Are the joy and the blessed relief finally of burdens put down, of grievances heard and acknowledged, apologies made, Forgiveness offered and received. The atmosphere was buoyant, hopeful and relieved. Genuine eye contact. Willing conversation. No festering wounds. No grudges. Genuine love that covered a multitude of sins. I am so thankful to God that he led Tim and Naomi and myself to this powerful, enduring moment of reconciliation. I can't begin to tell you how proud of them I am, how much I praise God, that when I emailed them last week to ask permission to share this story with you today, 13 years later, they still graciously said yes. And their prayer, our prayer, is that you have the hearts to receive this yourselves and to take action yourselves when you know you must. This story was not told to pad out a sermon or grab your attention. It was told with the express purpose to tell you to do the same, to follow the piecewise 4G steps. One, accept that God can be glorified through all things, even a conflict that you may be trapped in. I can't begin to express how much God has worked through this conflict for good in every area of my life. Even now he's working for the good of those who love him. Two, own your part in a conflict. I was full of pride at being appointed director. I was often thoughtless and insensitive and unaware. Sometimes I lashed out and bullishly pulled rank on people who worked with me. Own your own sin and apologize for it. You are 100% responsible, even if it's only 1% of the conflict. You're 100% responsible for your part. So learn how to give a genuine and heartfelt apology. Three, gently restore Overlook what you can. Some things can be definitely overlooked. But gently confront what must be confronted. Just go in prepared. 
prayerful, thoughtful. And lastly, four, go and be reconciled. Make that phone call, write that text, go in the power of the Spirit and be amazed at what His Spirit can do. Brothers and sisters, this congregation has a problem with unforgiveness. Most do. I think you know it, I know it, and if you don't, you soon will realize it. And it's time that we take our Lord seriously, because it's crucial for our souls and it's crucial for our witness. Here are several reasons why you should be convicted by this. The first, when Brett preached recently, he referred to Jesus' parable of the unmerciful servant, and rightly so. But it's equally relevant here. That wicked servant in Matthew 18, 23, refused to show mercy to his brother. I'm sure you remember the story. He refused to forgive the debt owed him, even though the king had just forgiven his impossible debt and set him free. Jesus is saying to you and me right now, unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart, you will not be forgiven the massive debt against God himself. It's that serious. For decades and decades, I have rattled off the Lord's Prayer without reading the next two verses. Verses that when you read them are utterly, hopelessly and horribly convicting. Matthew 6 verse 14 if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Verse 15. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now try and tell yourself that unforgiveness in our lives doesn't matter. Two. Your worship and gifts to God are pointless and unacceptable if you do not first reconcile with your adversary or your adversary. In Matthew 5, 24, Jesus says, First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. So my question is, are you going to take this warning from Jesus seriously today? And three, our unity, or lack of, as a church, is a witness to the world. John 17 is the prayer Jesus prayed for you and for me, and as our great advocate is still praying to the Father for you and me right now. Let me read it. John 17, 20. My prayer is not for them alone, the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that's us, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. And here it is. Then the world will know that you sent me 
and you have loved them even as you've loved me. Do you want to win people for Christ? Do you want them to believe that God sent Jesus to make peace with sinful humanity? Do you long for people to truly grasp the love of God in Jesus? Then we must be one, brothers and sisters, united as one. Otherwise, people will see we are not united, that we're in conflict, hating and devouring each other, and they will not believe that Jesus loves them. It's that serious. So I don't know how you're feeling right now. You're all very quiet, but God knows. And he calls for immediate and drastic action. We now have the opportunity to either receive or decline communion. Our most powerful demonstration of reconciliation with God and unity with each other. If the Lord has placed an urgent call on your heart, then I urge you, leave your offering at the altar and go and be reconciled with your adversary, with your brother or sister. Do it. Don't be afraid of others judging you. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? People will know that you're sinful and that you're now obeying God's command to repent and to forgive and be reconciled. That's a good thing. That's a wonderful thing. There's a church service to remember. Don't be stubborn. Don't be proud. If you need to, reconcile. Reconcile for the glory of God and for the sake of our witness to the world. So if you need to, when the music plays during a time of reflection now and we enter into a time of prayerful, silent thought, please get up and go outside. Go outside with your brother or sister and seek reconciliation or at the very least, initiate it. Agree to make a time as soon as possible to reconcile in full and tell someone else that you're going to do it and be accountable for doing it. If you need to talk with me or if you need to reconcile with me, I'll be available to talk after the service. And I promise you, each of the elders would dearly love to meet with anyone genuinely seeking reconciliation or needing help with reconciliation. And know this, dwell on this. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Just imagine God raising a harvest of righteousness from this church for all the world to see. Now that's a church I want to be part of. Will you unite with me in prayer right now? Gracious Lord, have mercy on your church. We are sinful, we're wounded, we're broken, and we're unforgiving. Now fill us, we pray, with your Holy Spirit, your spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. The self-discipline we need to take responsibility for our failings in a conflict. The self-discipline to proactively seek forgiveness and reconciliation. 
You haven't given us a spirit of timidity and weakness, and we're not asking in our own strength. Move us now by your Holy Spirit, I pray. Convict us. Challenge us to rise up and forgive, just as we have been forgiven our impossible debts. And may it be known across the Shoalhaven, across New South Wales, that people at NBC love each other deeply and that that love has covered a multitude of sins. May the God of peace raise a harvest of righteousness in this place today. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus, our Prince of Peace. Amen.